Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. Hello, Professor Ali. Thanks so much for joining us in the podcast. Uh, I would like to ask you uh, how you'd like to introduce and define yourself for the audience who may be first time listening to you. Sure. Um, well, I'm a, uh, currently the CEO of the Terasaki Institute, which is a initiative that's um, aiming to do translational research and science here in Los Angeles. And, um, and so I, I like to think of my, myself as a professor and hopefully an innovator. That's wonderful. So before we go into these details, I'm curious about your childhood. We know that childhood plays a significant role in how we are and shape our thinking. So how was your childhood was about science and technology? Yeah, so, um, so for me, definitely it was a, you know, it was a, I was interested in some of the things that are related to science and technology when I was younger, but I wouldn't say it was the defining aspect of it because I was always like very much interested in doing um, um, different types of things that, that challenged my mind and like things like puzzles or, um, you know, playing games of um, mind games or chess or things like that. Um, so I think to me that was the more um, stimulating part when I was younger and I only got into um, more and more deep into science as uh, my education progressed. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. So I'm curious about the transition. You know, you're CCO of the Tversaki Institute and you have really outstanding uh, career in academia. I'm curious, first of all, how this transition for you and to be a leading um, here in this position as CEO for Tversaki Institute, what is really something so different yeah so maybe before i answer that i can tell you a little bit about first of all what this institute is um and then maybe then i can talk about some some of the similarities um at the university so so i um uh maybe going back a little bit i trained at mit for my phd and then joined the faculty at harvard and i was there for about a dozen years before um, I decided to come to UCLA, um, and it was uh, it was always a good experience being a professor. But there there is some inherent limitations in being a professor, which includes um, really being part of a, already a very defined organization with its own culture and its own way of doing things. The other thing is in academia, it was um, it it is sometimes um, good for doing particular things, but also difficult for doing other things. So what what we had to, uh, what I was interested in is to try to enable some of our science into the real world and uh, creating something that bridges the so-called valley of death uh, in between translation, between basically uh, universities and industry. And, um, and that's what the Institute is trying to do. So for me, the major, um, Parts that are the same is are that you know it's still a nonprofit like a university. Um, it still has a research uh, mission, and it's uh, basically has postdocs and other researchers who come for training there. The differences are that we are much more focused on innovation as opposed to having a big, uh, big mission. That's kind of um, the universities have where they have departments from English to music or everything in between. And, um, and basically, uh, innovation comes as a byproduct of their educational mission. So, so the difference um, has been uh, uh, in being able to set the culture, um, to set a set of principles that the employees are uh, abiding by and we move as a team by. And these are some of the things that we call the leadership principles. Um, and um, and and my current role, I would say that it's uh, still has a lot of research um, in it. So I do interact a lot with the faculty and the scientists and trying to push things forward. But at the same time, I do have a bigger picture vision of what I want um, the institute to be and how I want it to make an impact. So 
in that sense, it's, it's uh, got similarities and differences. But what I can say is that it's been a very um, uh, exciting and interesting and stimulating transition, which, um, which has been very uh, helpful for me in kind of reinvigorating uh, my, um, my career. That's really interesting. I'd like to stop again at this point because I think that's something really, um, I think, um, very inspiring. As you already established professor in academia, and I think you have already 70,000 citations or more, and you still have this passion, but I think that what could be the missing piece? You mentioned that the project. Do you think in academia was, that there's something we still have uh, this concept of having a reproducible product? That was something not fulfilled for you? Well, I think, you know, before um, you even get to a product, the, the, the main thing that we're all trying to do is to make impact. Um, and I think impact uh, can be done in many different ways. I always say to my um, trainees that um, if you want to make impact every time you do something, you should either try to make the way someone thinks or the, the way someone practices their profession. Um, so you can make impact by creating um, new knowledge or discovering new things that actually changes the way people think as well. Uh, but uh, as an engineer, the most likely way we can um, generate that impact is by changing the way people do their profession. So to, to make real world um, applications in how um, different things are done. And then through that, since I'm in, in biomedical world, to make an impact on patients and their uh, well-being. So so for, for me, um, that focus on impact is really the most important thing. And having an organization that focuses on that and, and is very nimble and uh, fast-paced um, and can take some of those aspects that are often associated with working in industry at the same time combine it with long-term vision and uh, being able to think big and uh, not necessarily be uh, behold to the bottom line, which is profits right off the bat. I think that is the blend of the best of both worlds that I really like to have at the Institute. That's really wonderful. And I think that's something we need more vision like that. But I'm curious to ask you, what could be area or direction of research in biomedical field? You think it's really promising that maybe if we speak about here, academia or industry, and maybe the institute is trying to give much attention to it. Yeah, so I think the future of the kinds of stuff that um, are happening, I, I think there's going to be a lot more um, efforts in trying to generate uh, sustainable um, approaches to everything. And of course, uh, we're talking about, uh, in many cases, um, commodities, you know, everything from plastics to food supply to many other things, but also in biomedicine, bio trying to create uh, approaches that are sustainable and that they can be uh, globally implemented, they can be cost effective and, um, and fairly uh, cheap in trying to get these things um, Done. So I think um, in in that context, um, the the kind of research and the direction of the research that we're interested in doing are the kind that are going to be not only solving um, problems with healthcare, but also do it in a responsible and sustainable and ethically uh, favorable uh, manner. And I think that's um, the, one of the most important things. And to do that, I think you need to really uh, create an ecosystem where failure is acceptable um high risks high reward projects are 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 uh, are often uh, pursued and these so-called moonshots which are um basically the kind of work that um, maybe they only work um, in 10% of the cases for different ideas, but if they work, they are the kind that can change the world. So these are, um, and the only way to, to do that is to really bring in people from different backgrounds, people who think differently um, out of the box and can try to actually get these types of ideas um, out um, in the real world. And I think uh, that's what uh, the Institute is trying to do, create an ecosystem that is tailored um, and has the culture for um, this innovation and um, con constantly uh, pushes people to reset their mode of creative thinking and thinking out of the box when we uh, get uh, stale and back into our kind of comfort zone. 
Yeah, that's really interesting. I'm curious to skip Vasarali in this case, because I think that's a question we have in the podcast about the publication. Because you mentioned something very interesting and very inspiring, that you need people to think differently and outside the box to come up with really imp- the real impactful projects. Do you think in academia the model of publication? I don't know what... Uh, still, the, the Trasek is not profit yet. So I don't know which model do you think you have to rely on the case. Because in academia, we have the only metrics we have is publication. And we lack sometimes this kind of re-prototype. What do you think maybe other models do you think beyond publication could be a good index that we are doing a great job? Yeah, well, I think it's difficult to um, have many of these other metrics in academia, particularly because... Um, the time to maturity on innovation is not necessarily um, aligned with time for promotions in academia and other things like that. So uh, publications are a way in which people have measured uh, productivity and um, academic um, achievements, but it's not necessarily the the only way to do it or even the right way to do it. And, and I, I know um, of this because I've, um, I've been in that world um, and I'm still in that world. Um, so I understand the, the mentality of publishing and getting lots of citations and getting well known and recognized in a particular area. I think all of those are fine, um, but it does have a tendency to pigeonhole people and put them in this um, basically a, a, a rat wheel that um, you just publish and publish and get more grants and publish and publish without really stepping back and understanding the bigger um, impact of the work. Um, and I think that's what is important to do in many cases because uh, while academia is is uh, really wonderful in a number of different ways that it allows for freedom to do any kind of work and um, to really um, have the flexibility to do that, at the same time, um, it does uh, put some limits on the kind of um, um, impact that one can make once um, me- the metrics are not really um, aligned with real-world impact. That's great. I'm curious to ask again about this point because I think, I think many audience listen to you maybe because you, this is idea I think is just we need something like that. I think Trasek Institute, uh, I think that's something beyond the academia and industry and something that's actually what we need. And I'm curious to ask you uh, the feeling you had to do this kind of decision because you are established, you are really well, well known in the field and have a lot of success. Was it easy for you? Well, I think, you know, for me, it was obviously anytime you're making a big change, um, it's not an easy decision. It's um, every time you take a risk uh, and you you put yourself out of your comfort zone, I think uh, it's a difficult decision. But um, I did feel that um, for me to continue progressing through um, and further developing myself in different things, I have to put myself in those kinds of positions. And one of the things, for example, that I did um, while I was at UCLA and transitioning to the Institute was to actually take a stint um, in industry. Um, So I went to Amazon for 10 months to learn their culture and to learn how uh, things in real industry works and what is valued and what is um, what is impact in that sense. So that was also very en- enlightening um, for me to be able to um, thread both between industry and academia and being um, at established universities as well as an established company and um, also having some entrepreneurial exper- experience in trying to get some startups off the ground. So I think all of those uh, experiences are um, not going to come your way unless you take these uh, steps and initiatives and try to get out of your comfort zone. I think um, the ultimate uh, way to think about this is that if you're just um, your goal is to get a tenured faculty position and um, and that is the goal, then um, of course you know you can achieve that goal and stay um, in that goal. 
um, for the rest of one's life. But if the goal is to maximize impact, every time you feel that you've stagnated and um, you need to move to the next step of your career to further develop it, then you need to be able to take risks. And I would argue that the risks that I made were, um, again, well-calculated risks. They weren't really um, major risks, but it, the bigger the impact, the more um, major a risk one has to take. Um, so for me, uh, moving out of Harvard, I felt that that was a risk coming to West Coast and a, um, a place like UCLA. And then, of course, moving from UCLA to the Institute and having the ex- moving, um, moving through um, Amazon on the way to do it, I think was also, um, these were all risks. But, uh, but I got paid um, throughout the process. I didn't have to um, sacrifice, um, you know, um, different things. And I think that those are, uh, it just, just shows that, um, there, there's room for even bigger risks throughout uh, these kinds of, um, uh, life changing and potentially, um, uh, transformative decisions that allows people to, um, really make a uh, big impact. I really admire that. Maybe a quick question here. What the thing maybe changed in you in taking a risk? Because not everyone is willing to take a risk to fulfill their purpose, you say, I see that you have aspiration to do impact, and that's so clear. Yeah, so I think every time you do that, you grow a lot. So uh, I would say I was at Harvard for and MIT for 17 years, so I was there for a long time, um, and I had become very um, settled in that ecosystem and um and uh, I felt that uh, I can continue going like that for another 30 years, but, but was I going to grow a lot more? And I think the, the subsequent moves have allowed me to, first of all, be able to reevaluate the kind of work that I'm doing, the kind of impact that I'm making, and uh, try to establish new connections and um, broaden my horizons to um, different areas. Um, and it's really helped me to now become a much more, um, uh, I, I would say, strong in um, my abilities to get things done beyond just uh, publishing papers and uh, writing proposals and things related to that. So, so those are some of the things that I think um, one has to do. And, you know, again, the risk doesn't have to be um, a, a, a very um, crazy risk. I think just being able to put yourself out of your comfort zone and doing what is potentially the, um, the right decision long term um, at any fork in the road is is important. And a lot of times um, we um, tend to do what's easier as opposed to uh, what's harder. And um, while um, not every hard thing that one does is important, every important thing is hard uh, to do. So, so I think um, that's the uh, mentality that one has to have in their mindset and uh, try to go forward based on that. I really admire this mentality. It's really not common to see this mentality. So I, I really admire that. But maybe because you have a lot of interesting research, we have a lot of questions about your work because you're really, really uh, a talented researcher and you do a lot of interesting work for the community. And yeah, you are pioneered in that field. For example, the biomaterials that can respond to the patient needs. Because we speak in software robotics about material design, but for biomaterial design, how you design them? What is maybe the most challenging part? Figure out what could be significant parameters that you have to consider. Yeah. Well, I think um, biomaterials is one of those areas that it's so broad um, and there's so many different things that are uh, related to it. So many things have been done um, to really be able to make an impact in that field, you need to really work backwards from the problem that um, exists in the real world and then understand the parameter space and the design criteria that is needed to get um, to that ideal solution. Um, and then try to see um, what kinds of um, scientific principles and uh, material uh, principles can go into designing that solution. So in many cases that 
requires us to um, understand the medical problem, talk to clinicians, and uh, understand the competing um, technology and the competing materials and their limitations. And then going to um, basically designing uh, materials that can enable that. Now, more and more, we're appreciating that nature and natural materials have inherent properties that would make them suitable for biomaterials. So we can many times start off with the natural system and be able to either recreate it or adapt it in a way that allows us to engineer specific components into the, those materials and make them properties in a way that allows us to address those problems. So these are just some of the principles that one can do in designing these, but obviously the field is so large that for every specific problem, there is a different solution. I'm curious to ask you, um, since you are really so smart, and I'm curious, maybe there's a question, how we can get this solution? What inspired you to get this solution? What tactics you use to, to come up with new innovative ideas? In? How, it's, how it's happened to you? Well, for me, it's always been very important in working with other people and working in teams. I don't necessarily know there's many of the solutions that we've published that have come in vacuum by me working by myself and thinking about it. So every time we uh, think of a problem, we start to really thinking about think about the different aspects of the problem and the different capabilities of our teams and how we can go about addressing those problems together. So a lot of times the inspirations um, come from all over. Um, typically, they come from the students and postdocs themselves. And what I can do oftentimes is to basically put my experience um, layer on top of those ideas and see if there's some of them that may um, have higher impact compared to other ones. Um, but um, I think the process of creative thinking and coming up with ideas is is um, definitely not a, a trivial thing. Uh, I think ideas can come in many different forms and many different ways. Uh, one of the things that we have to do is just uh, push ourselves to try to um, think outside of our um, standard domains and standard ways of thinking, which is not always trivial. So things like brainstorm sessions and um, or just kind of hearing a lot from what other people think are are important. And of course, all of that has to be done in the context of understanding that field and what has been done in that area, um, as well as what's around what are the new and emerging tool sets that can be applied to that particular problem um, and um, and then be able to uh, come up with something that is worthwhile pursuing. So maybe I'm curious about what could be the unsolvable dilemma of biomaterials? Something is still challenging. Well, yeah, well, I think there's a lot of uh, remaining challenges in the field of materials and uh, biomaterials specifically. I, I think that uh, because in biomaterials you're dealing with nature and um, nature has evolved over billions of years to have mechanisms of identifying things that are not supposed to be in the body um, and being um, able to deal with them. So I think some of the aspects of really understanding um, the role between immunology and materials is uh, very important, as well as being able to modulate uh, the underlying biology through um, different ways in which we can engineer these types of materials. I think there's a lot of wealth of um, um, complexity and opportunity there to address things. And uh, I, I think that we're basically at the beginning of this era where we can um, take a lot of biological knowledge, be able to directly um, incorporate um, components from this into our materials or um, be able to make materials that can, um, um, through their innate properties, be able to uh, regulate the surrounding uh, biology. And so there's a lot of really fascinating things going on right now 
one of the types of things that has me excited is to be able to make materials that just by um, their own um, physical and biochemical properties can induce particular behaviors um, in the biological system, for example, to induce regeneration or to be able to um, eliminate disease like cancer or other things. And, um, and I, th- I think those would be applicable to many different areas and it's just the beginning of it. Yeah, yeah. So maybe I'm curious about the biomaterial. Do you think um, well, maybe designing material that never damage? I think that's something we speak all the time. Can we design material that never damage? Well, I think um, the way to really create um, durability in some of the biological systems that uh, we deal with is um, to not necessarily have the material itself never get damaged because that's a um, that's a very uh, tall order. But if you look at some of the biological components that we have, for example, the heart, um, it uh, beats uh, billions of times over one's lifetime, um, and it's a fairly um, a fairly uh, amazing accomplishment given the biomechanical forces. Um, involved in the process of heart beating. The way it does it is that it doesn't necessarily just make a material that can withstand billions of compression, but it builds in a system where um, specific um, regeneration or um, deposition of the molecules um, can happen so to make the system continuously robust. So in many ways, if we make the right material in a biological system, we could potentially get a similar type of behavior where um, even though the initially deposited material that we have is potentially fully degradable or um, goes away after a while, but the results can uh, generate a structure that can um, withstand the entire life of the organism. Um, And that's something for, of course, um, in the body. But if you start now looking at um, things outside of the body, then you can accomplish similar things. So I'm sure you've heard about things like um, bio-robots, uh, things that are basically cells and um, materials, and um, you can start um, using them as actuators or different types of robotic systems. Um, similar principles that I just mentioned about how you can induce um, particular biological behaviors in the body can also be um, used outside of the body. So you can potentially have regenerative systems in these robotics or or have uh, fairly uh, sophisticated mechanisms of um, autoregulation or things like that that actually allows us to have additional um, um, behaviors like having a long-term durability. Yeah. I'm curious to ask you maybe what are the challenges of integrating? We speak about biohybrid, for example, actuator in that case. What are the challenges of integrating artificial material with biomaterial? There are challenges you still face in that designing process. Yeah, well, I think um, the main challenges associated with integrating different materials are numerous. Uh, for example, um, if we're um, trying to accomplish a particular task like actuation, we want to make sure that um, there's um, proper mechanical mismatch um, in cases you don't want any mechanical mismatch. You want to make sure that the effects of different materials on each other is well known and understood so that um, you don't have issues like um, one material causing um, degradation or other types of toxic behaviors in um, other materials or cell types. So these are some um, standard things, but I think the um, integration of these materials is also fairly uh, important more and more um, as techniques like 3D printing and other additive manufacturing techniques are coming on board, um, we can try to create um, uh, approaches where we can integrate different materials in a reproducible way. Now, most of these processes have traditionally been a one material kind of process, so you 3D print one type of material. But as we start developing these um, more advanced printers, then we can uh, be able to reproducibly generate 
um, structures that have multiple different types of materials from uh, organic and organic um, and other sources, and then be able to generate the complexity and the functionality that's required for some of these systems. Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious to go again for uh, your work about micro and nanoscale technology for cancer treatment. First of all, which level do you think you have to understand when you deal with micro and nano? Which one is the challenge of liver understanding to approach as a design process and, uh, for example, cancer treatment? If you can give an example about that, which level of understanding do you need? Yeah, so I think uh, like some of these other areas, um, it's very important to understand the problem. Um, and in cancer, um, obviously, there's a number of different uh, biological um, challenges involved. Um, being able to deliver the right type of um, uh, drug to the right area um, in the body is, is very important. And um, so, so there's been a lot of attempts at trying to do that, things like nanoparticle um, delivery that's targeted and it tries to find the um, cancer cells in the body based on specific target molecules or cell uh, surface receptors. You know, these are, <clears throat> there's a lot of different approaches that um, have been tried. The way that I'm kind of thinking about um, some of this uh, um, applying micro nanotechnologies to cancer therapeutic and drug delivery is is really based on trying to um, one be able to um, understand where where at least the site of prime primary tumors are and then be able to deliver um, materials that can uh, release drugs or or other types of um, agents like vaccines um, directly near or in the tumor um, over long periods of time so that you not only um, deal with the primary uh, tumor, but also minimize um, uh, metastasis to other sites by um, um, dealing with um, cells that are kind of moving around from the tumor. So that's kind of one of our approaches, and we've developed materials that you can inject or deliver through blood vessels to these um, tumors. The other approach, which I think is more relevant for um, vaccines, is to use the body's own immune system to hunt down these um, uh, tumor cells, whether they're metastatic cells or uh, the primary tumor cell, um, and then uh, be able to hunt them down and uh, get rid of them. Um, And for that, one of the approaches to ensure this uh, vaccine uh, approach works well is to actually develop um, simple technologies that can be applied. So one of the ones that more and more we've been using are microneedle array patches so that you can actually load your cancer vaccine onto these. Um, You can administer it um, by pressing this uh, array of very tiny needles onto the skin and these uh, tiny needles are painless. You don't feel them, and they don't really uh, cause any bleeding, but they're able to deliver the um, cancer vaccine um, in an area um, uh, under the skin where there are a lot of resident immune cells, and that um, delivery can allow the um, immune cells to become um, um, responsive to the uh, tumor cells. So these are some approaches in which we can kind of take to address um, uh, cancer specifically, but the principles uh, can be much broader and can be applied to a number of different types of diseases. Mm-hmm. And what about accuracy? Because I think it's something we ask also about the accuracy for touch application like that. If we speak a last one, how, what, what is the percentage yeah. of accuracy? So, so the accuracy of <clears throat> um, getting to the right cells and um, um, dealing with it, it really depends also on many parameters like the type of cancer, the stage, and the type of uh, therapeutics that we're doing. Um, in some cases, it's possible to um, really have high um, efficacy on, on the tumors and be able to um, eliminate them completely. Of course, um, it all also depends on um, um, the, really the biology of the, these things. So 
if there are, there are certain types of tumors like um, that are very responsive to things like immune therapy because the immune cells can get to the tumor cells. And then there are other types of tumors where things like immune cells or drugs are have a difficulty because um, the, uh, the tumor, let's say, is so dense that immune cells can't get to it or the drug can't man- penetrate into it. So these are some types of things. So the accuracy could be um, from very, very good to like basically from basically treating cancer to having um, a, basically a non, um, non-viable um, approach. Yeah, yeah. So also one of the interesting approach about organ and chip. The first question is how, how you can design a system that mimic the human physiology? How it's hard to do that for the young models and this mechanical? Well, for organs on a chip, I think one of the things that we've done is we've spent a lot of time in trying to build tissues um, for regenerative medicine. And really the organs on a chip technology is the extension of that to basically creating human physiology outside of the body. So we still use the same kind of principles as tissue engineering. We take cells from uh, humans, uh, from potentially even the same patient where we're trying to understand if the drug is going to be worked for. Uh, Then we can use stem cell science to be able to take those cells and make uh, tissue-specific cells out of them, so be able to make liver cells or heart cells out of them. And then we can use techniques like 3D printing combined with the right kind of materials to make a miniaturized version of those tissues. Um, and then we can use techniques like microfluidics and, um, and bioreactors to mature those tissues and even link them together. So this... Um, set of techniques have really allowed us to push this um, area much further. Um, And now what we can do is that we can um, take these principles and be able to um, um, push them in a way that allows allows us to um, deal with many different types of um, um, situations. So it really has enabled us to go much further in this and um, create much better solutions. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you things you think we have to think outside the box. If I ask you about the biomaterial, do you think kind of sort what could be the optimum biomaterial have to design or maybe something can enhance human uh, tissue already? We can design something more stronger. So do you have any kind of sort like that, how you can design something weird in biomaterials? Yeah, so... Um, I think for biomaterials, um, uh, the, the way to kind of design um, new things is to really um, use the latest in what we know. And in many ways, that is going to look at the molecules themselves and then designing these um, um, biomaterials molecule by molecule. So how is that done? Well, we know things like how to control proteins or nucleic acids or or other other types of materials so we can apply the same kinds of processes to the biomaterials and then be able to um, really engineer them with the right kind of biological properties with the right kind of um, mechanical properties and um, and be able to have them be applicable to a particular situation. So, you know, techniques like um, protein design, um, supramolecular chemistry, um, all of those have been more and more um, integrated with um, biomaterials design. So they use principles like um, self-assembly or latest in um, chemical conjugations like click chemistry or things like that to really design materials that are fairly well defined in their chemistry and um, and their behavior. Yeah, yeah. So I'd like to go for soft robotics because you have also working in electro-driven micro-engineered uh, bionospire soft robot. First of all, what do you think, BB, something is really inspiring to you 
and maybe inform the nature that could be replicated for soft robotics and biomaterial. What could be this inspiration look like? So um, I think some of the examples of um, the kind of things that we've been um, talking about re related to being able to merge cells and um, materials and 3D printing um, with um, other systems, I think are some of the first examples of this where we're trying to create um, materials that are um, basically allows us to um, to have these um, materials um, um, and systems that can um, create these uh, robotic systems that can actuate, that can deliver um, they deliver nutrients so that these cells are functional over longer periods of time. They can even have uh, some level of smartness. So for example, they can have neural systems um, so that they can um, potentially signal the cells. Uh, they can have muscle cells so that they can do actuation. They can even have other cell types that can do uh, metabolism or other types of things that it needs. Um, so even though the field of soft robotic is still uh, fairly um, uh, new to tissue engineering and um, its integration has just been demonstrated on a few papers, we think that there's a lot of um, opportunity in further integrating these and coming up with new platforms that actually uh, make more sense. What, what makes soft material or biomaterial viable to be used as a manufacturing material is it better functionality or easy manufacturing? I think they're both really important. Um, I would say to make anything that is uh, going to be useful, you really need to have both. So just as an example, we've, um, we've done a lot of different materials over the years. And one of the ones that's been most adopted by the field and now used uh, very widely in the field of bioprinting, um, as well as the field of tissue engineering and uh, drug delivery, is uh, the use of photocross-linkable gelatin. Now, that is a very simple material. Um, it's easy to fabricate, um, and that has a lot to do with, with why it's so widespread uh, in its use. But at the same time, it's a material that is... Um, it's basically um, it's a it's it's a material that um, it's uh, functional in many ways because gelatin is a natural uh, material and cells like to interact with it. So it's really the combination of the both functionality and ease of um, development that makes something widely useful. Yeah, yeah. Also, we have a question about what could be uh, the maybe the short and long term uh, technological roadblocks you face in Terasek Institute. What could be the biggest uh, technological roadblocks in a short term and a long term? Yeah, so <clears throat> for us, what um, I think are some of the important things um, uh, technologically that we think are um, worthwhile going after are, at least in the short term, are things that are very timely related to um, things that are of global importance, how we um, distribute vaccines to you know, 7 to 10 billion people, how we um, help in um, making sure that uh, we have sustainability in our, um, in our um, existence, uh, whether that's from um, creating alternatives to um, the current food supply, to being able to generate um, therapeutics that are more efficacious. So these are some, um, we have some specific projects in these that are kind of more related to um, immediate um, uh, results that can come out. And we have um, um, also some um, longer term um, issues or projects like, like the kind of things that I just mentioned, which is how do you engineer um, um, soft robotics that are going to be 
um, be able to do um, real world um, applications. And of course, how do you engineer tissues that um, you can uh, tailor for each person so that um, you don't have to wait for someone to die so before you can um, generate um, um, another um, tissue for someone. So these are um, different types of questions, but I think um, the general idea with them is very similar that we're trying to create um, processes that are going to be um, effective. Yeah, wonderful. So I'll close this end and I have a few questions. The first one is, how can we ensure a diversity of approaches, um, get the exposure they deserve and prevent overinvestment in a limited set of techniques? So we see sometimes in academia, for example, tend to establish strong beliefs about other fields that maybe come often as organs or elitism as well, and discouraging exploration of ideas outside the mainstream. So the question is, how, how can we enable more intellectually inclusive culture for different ideas or approaches? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think the main um, way to do it is to first get the right um, players um, around the table, the people from um, the diverse backgrounds, uh, diverse um, um, technological understanding, and you know, combine them with every other stakeholder, uh, whether those are um, the practitioners to um, to entrepreneurs to everything else, and then um, the other thing is to really have a appreciation for everyone on that table to appreciate that every person does bring something unique um, to um, solving that problem and having um, them um, uh, basically voice their concerns and then being able to um, go from there and um, address um, 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 issues related to things. So these are um, just some examples of the way um, we can um, go about doing this. I think appreciation and um, and trust and um, really being able to make everyone feel comfortable um, in that setting. Yeah, I agree with you. Thanks for saying that. And uh, I would like to ask you what is your aspiration as you, Professor uh, Ali, as a person and as a, also in, in your research. What aspiration you want in your life? Yeah, well, you know, I, I like to definitely continue making bigger and bigger impacts. Um, I have seen um, very uh, incredible scientists making very important breakthroughs, and I definitely would like to uh, be amongst them in many ways. So uh, my own uh, aspirations are fairly ambitious, and uh, I, that's why I have uh, tried not to settle and continuously um, push myself to accomplish more. Yeah. And do you think ego is important for the researcher? Well, I think ego is actually counterproductive. Most of the most successful scientists I know don't really have much of an ego. But, but you need to believe in yourself and uh, you need to have confidence in, um, in yourself. At the same time, you need to be able to... Um, to be able to work in teams and the the more functional you want to be as a team the less um uh, the less ego you're going to have and the more comfort you're going to have with yourself so that you don't need to um, have ego to be in that team and which book inspired you so um i think there's a lot of different um books that um i recommend um, to people. I, I, I do like this book um, that's um, called um, Loon Shots, and it talks about basically the, um, uh, the, I, the process of coming up with ideas and how you can generate um, ideas that are potentially revolutionary and uh, very impactful. Uh, more and more, I get my kind of um, continuous education through um, um, not only books, but also lots of other types of sources. So I'm a big um, uh, believer in just continuously um, going to different types of webinars and listening to very um, bright people talk about their experiences. Um, so I, so that's more and more become 
my uh, venue of uh, learning. That's wonderful. Yeah. And I'm curious to ask you what may be the most important quality you have gained while being in academia and you have a really huge success uh, and also now being at Tarsac City. What may be the most important quality you have to maintain? Well, I think um, the most important thing is to be able to continuously adapt and um, and push things forward. Um, Really, some of the existing um, things that are there um, um, it's, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that anyone can accomplish a lot and continuously accomplish a lot, um, till they're, you know, till they're old in their life. Right. So, um, so I don't think, uh, there's any limitation, um, but one has to continuously be ambitious and continuously push themselves and continuously be aware of, um, what are the things around the corner and uh, be able to, and knowing those things, then you're typically in the right time at the right place and you generate your own luck in many ways. Lastly, what was the best advice was given to you was a personally or professionally and was life changing? Well, I think um, uh, some of the advice that I've been given is to um, always think big um, and I appreciate that more and more as I um, become more mature in my um, thinking that um, it really does take the same amount of time to do something that is very, very important compared to something that is um, mundane in many ways. So having the ability to think big is um, is of great importance. Um, the other thing um, I think is to really try to be the best in every any profession that you choose yourself so um, because um, independent of what you decide to do if you're really passionate about it um, then uh, you have a much better chance of being really good at it so following your passion um, I think is very important and do you have any final words would like to say for software bodies community or biomaterial as well who's working on any final words would like to say well I, I, I just think that um, you know, first of all, I think it's uh, wonderful to come here, and I want to thank you for this opportunity. Um, I I would love to have more and more cross pollination between these sorts of fields. So I'm uh, trained as a chemical engineer, but I've been a IEEE. Uh, member and now senior fellow, senior member for many, many years. Um, and one of the things that um, I, I like to do is more and more of the people that are in these and different sorts of communities to start thinking about big problems and interacting. And uh, one of the things that we try to do at the Institute is to always be a home for very creative uh, people and creative thinkers. So I definitely encourage um, anyone who's um, online who's interested in um, the work that we're doing to um, log on to terasaki.org and try to see more about the work. And if you're um, still interested, feel free to um, contact us um, in seeing if we can um, have some collaborations or um, um, have you come over. So, yeah, thanks so much for Ali. It was such an honor to have you on the podcast. And you're really an inspiration for many researchers. And, yeah, such an honor to have you and... Uh, I wish for you also more and more achievement for Atra Second Institute. And I think you're doing really uh, extraordinary work and visionary as well. So thanks so much again for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure.